Well, welcome again to another edition of AP's Profiles in Christian Living. My special guest with me today is uh, the doctor, uh, Murray Smith. No, not, not yet. doctor yet. Not yet. Oh, okay. I was going to almost call you Reverend Doctor. Yeah, neither. Neither. Oh my, <laughs> Mister Murray Smith. That's right. Although you are, you've just about completed your PhD doctorate. thesis is under examination. Yeah. Okay. So hopefully soon. But you are the lecturer in New Testament at Christ College. Correct? That's right. Biblical theology and exegesis, they call it. Okay. Well, I, I got one of them. Right. <laughs> so it's good, Murray. It's great to have you with us. Hmm. And uh, I know you've done a lot of really great work in the New South Wales Assembly, talking about the role of elders and deacons. Um, let's kick it off. Is there any biblical basis for church government and polity? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and historically, the Presbyterian Church has answered that question with a, a yes. There is a biblical basis. We hold to a Presbyterian form of church government because we read it in the scriptures. That differentiates the Presbyterian position from, say, the Anglican position, which historically said there's no biblical basis, uh, no clear teaching about the order of church government in Scripture. And so we should either uh, continue with what we've inherited from the medieval church or we should make up uh, new forms of church government that best suit the mission of the gospel. But the Presbyterians said, no, uh, we see across the Scriptures a consistent pattern uh, and that's clearest with eldership, that all the way through covenant history, beginning in the Exodus, you see God's people being led by elders, even at the time of Moses in Egypt. Uh, Exodus 3, 16 and 18 is the first reference to the elders of Israel. And you see them as a collective body uh, of godly, wise men who are appointed to lead the people. And that continues all the way through the Old Testament, so they're still there, the elders of the people in the Sanhedrin, uh, in the pages of the New Testament. And so there's kind of a presumption as you come across into the New Testament that unless something radical happens, God's people are going to continue to be led by elders uh, in the New Covenant era. And something really interesting happens then in the book of Acts where you have the elders of the Jews call the apostles before them in Acts 4 and interrogate them on a doctrinal matter. You're preaching Jesus as the Christ uh, mm. and disciplining the apostles for this false teaching. <laughs> uh, and they thereby disqualify themselves as elders of God's people because mm. they fail to recognize the Messiah. And then you have emerging in Acts 11 and Acts 15 elders amongst the Christian churches uh, mm. who also judge doctrine uh, in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And so you see, I think in Acts, this deliberate transitioning from the elders of the old covenant people to the elders of the new covenant people mm. who embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And then you find the apostles traveling around uh, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and then in Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas go back to the churches that they planted and they appoint elders, a plurality of them, in every church. So it's clearly apostolic practice. Uh, and then you find uh, Paul commanding Timothy and Titus uh, to appoint elders in every town. That's Titus 1. So there's not just apostolic practice, but apostolic command. Mm. Uh, and then you read across the pages of the New Testament and you find that there are elders in Paul's churches, elders in the churches addressed by James, elders in the churches addressed by Peter. And so there's this consistent pattern, not just in one church here or there, but across all of the apostolic churches. And so that's the kind of basis that the, the Presbyterian Church has always said, look, there's a, there's a very clear biblical pattern here mm. uh, that gives us a, a biblical basis for recognising a plurality of elders as the form of government that God has given to his people. Okay, now I think I could say pretty safely like you, we're both Presbyterians by conviction. Yep. E everything you've just outlined, completely agree with. Um, let me play devil's advocate. Sure. Uh, an Episcopalian is here. We've, we're in Sydney. There's lots of good brothers and sisters that are part of the Sydney Anglican Diocese, and they're saying, oh, look, it's pragmatics. 
this works. Hmm. Why, why would we need to reform our polity? Why is that so important when actually there are other good systems where it's functioning well? Yeah, sure. It's, it's hard to get this right because I'd say that biblical church government is an important secondary matter. Okay. Uh, it's not a matter of first importance. That's the gospel mm. uh, and all of the biblical doctrines associated with the gospel that enable the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Uh, and so those are the matters of first importance. Mm. Uh, it's not as if reforming our government is going to be a kind of silver bullet uh, that brings church renewal and growth. Mm. Uh, it hasn't got that power to it. That's God's work by his spirit through the ministry of the gospel. And yet uh, God has given us a form for the government of his church and we need to trust his wisdom that's revealed to us uh, in his word. Think about it like um, there's a, a book, The Trellis and the Vine, many people have read, really helpful book in lots of ways. And they, they use this image of vine work and trellis work, that you need a, a functioning trellis in order to do the work of uh, yeah. proclaiming the gospel, applying it to people's lives and see the vine of the church grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really helpful image. And I, I think what we find in scripture is that the central struts of the trellis are given to us by God. Mm-hmm. There's lots of filling in that we need to do. You don't get all the details of how a, a church should run in Scripture, but you get the central struts of the trellis. So there is a place for pragmatics uh, in the application and the outworking of what God has given to us in his word. Mm. Uh, but it's, I'd say it's got to take place within those constraints that, that we have in Scripture. Okay. Now, I made a mistake before, called you Reverend Doctor. You're not a doctorate yet. and You haven't got your doctorate just yet. You're not a, a, min, a reverend just yet, although you are lecturing in New Testament theology and you are an active elder uh, in your church, Hornsby Presbyterian Church. Let me ask you this, practically on the ground as well as exegetically from the scriptures, what is the positive benefit of reforming our polity to that of the scriptures as reflected in the New Testament of a plurality of elders? Yeah. What's the positive advantage, do you yeah. think? Oh, I, I mean... Apart from being faithful to what God's given us to given us in His Word, which is enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, I think that the, the the practical advantage that you'll see on the ground, the the wisdom in what God has given us in His Word, is that churches are to be led by not just one uh, faithful, godly elder, but by a team of men working together, uh, who are together teaching and preaching the Word, pastoring God's people, discipling people in Christ, holding out the gospel. Uh, and surely a team of men working together like that is going to be better than one man uh, on his own. That, that, that's the biblical wisdom. Uh, in, in Scripture, you do find a, especially in, in one particular place, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, uh, you find a distinction within the eldership. Uh, so uh, Paul says that the elders who rule well be worthy of double honour. Uh, and notice he's talking about all of the elders there, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. They're all worthy of double honour. What's the double honour? I think it's respect and remuneration. <laughs> That's the double honour because he goes on to quote Deuteronomy, um, uh, the ox treading out the grain uh, mm. gets to eat of the grain that he's treading out. The worker is worthy of his wages. So it's respect and remuneration. All the elders are worthy of that. But then he says, especially those who labour in the word and teaching. So amongst the elders, there are some who are going to especially labor in the word mm. uh, and teaching. We call them ministers or some traditions call them teaching elders. It's not a, I'd say it's not a different office. It's the same office doing the same role, pastoring, mm. teaching, but doing it to a greater degree. These are guys who've given up their day job. They're no longer laboring in some other work. Mm. They're laboring full time in the word and they're mm. especially worthy of, our, of double honor. 
Uh, so what that means practically on the ground is I think you've got a team of guys, uh, those whom we set apart as, what are we going to call them? We call them ministers. Mm-hmm. Paul calls them those who labour in the word. Uh, they're going to take a, a leading role in the preaching and teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's right that we um, require greater training of them. Uh, we, requ- you know, In the Presbyterian Church uh, Australia, we require a four-year course of training for the, the ministers. We don't require so much training for the elders. Uh, and yet, uh, those ministers are not labouring on their own. Uh, they've got a team of guys working alongside them mm. who can take a share according to their gifts and opportunities in the preaching ministry, in other teaching ministries. Okay, so let's church. drill down on that. Yeah. Because right? um, I know that, um, you, know, you know, I think within our denomination, mm. um, practically it's a, like a three order church, isn't it? Ministers, elders. I think um, it's different I, I, in different places. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but I. What I've seen you're emphasising from the scriptures mm. is really raising up so that it's more of a two-order, or even if I can say it cheekily, 2.5 right, order, because sure. <laughs> there is a first amongst equals. Yep. What do you think um, on the ground practically and pastorally, our, if I can call it ruling elders, mm. need to do more in terms of stepping up to their responsibility? yeah. yeah. So the General Assembly of Australia has really helpfully in 2019 given us a definition of eldership mm-hmm. uh, and it, it lays out the, the major tasks of elders uh, really helpfully is praying with and for God's people, yeah. uh, uh, teaching the word yeah. uh, and um, providing leadership, uh, godly wisdom and, and guidance for the mm-hmm. church uh, and doing all of that under the shepherding rubric that you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I think... What I'd love to see, what I'm praying for and working for in the next generation of elders uh, being raised up and, uh, and appointed in the church and for existing elders is that we're, we're better equipped uh, at pastoring, uh, at prayerfully leading and teaching God's word and applying it to the lives of God's people. Mm. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, I think there's lots of different ways that you can apply that and work it out in a particular church. Mm. So this is where we, I go back to the, the trellis image. Yep. God's given us the central struts, but there's no one way that it's got to look in any particular church. So I'm, I'm hesitant okay. to, 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 to lay down any rules. <laughs> mm. I think we can work them out locally. What we do in our local church is uh, James, our minister, uh, takes the lion's share of the preaching. Uh, he does, I don't know, something like 70% of the preaching in our church. Mm. Uh, and then we've got two other elders, myself and, and John, and uh, between us we do probably 20%. Uh, mm. And then we have student ministers or guests do the, the remaining 10. Something like that is how we work it out. But then we have other ministries in the church. Um, so we have a Christian education program every Sunday after church, uh, and I take primary responsibility for that. So I do most of the teaching in that, say 70%. Mm. And James and John do some of it, and sometimes we get others to do some as well. Okay. Uh, and then we have a, a network of small groups. We call them gospel communities. Mm-hmm. And John Pratt, the other elder, takes the leadership of those yeah. and oversees those. So we've, we've kind of divided up the ministries of the church under the oversight of the different elders. Mm. Uh, pastoral care, we do similarly. We've, we've, as people become members of the church, uh, we divide them up amongst us. Mm. Uh, so I've got a list of people who are, who are my people. <laughs> of course, they're not my people they're the lord's people but mm. people who i take partic- you're the under shepherd that's right mm. i take particular responsibility for uh, to pray for them uh, to to disciple them yeah. most of them are in my gospel community group but there are others as well mm. uh, so we're trying to work that out in those kinds of ways mm. of sharing the load amongst us yep. both the preaching and teaching load uh, and the pastoral care load okay. amongst the elders. Then, of course, we, we try to gather others in alongside us. Mm. Uh, it's not 
the elders alone doing the work, mm. but it's the elders providing the leadership in that work. Now, I know you're um, obviously passionate about the role of eldership and godly eldership and biblical eldership, but there's a whole other category here which is somewhat of an anomaly in our denomination, and that is of deacons. Mm. Um, first of all, historically, um, we are a reformed church, always reforming, wanting to um, uh, comply with the scriptures. Why have we not had deacons in the Australian Presbyterian Church? Yeah, good What's happened? <laughs> good question. I don't actually know a clear answer to the historical question mm. in the Australian church, though I do notice a pattern amongst reformed churches is that it's, the deacons have tend to fall out of disuse before eldership. Uh, and so we're not alone in finding that uh, we haven't maintained a diaconate in our churches. It's, it's a sad thing, but I think it's a, a relatively common phenomenon. Mm. Uh, maybe part of the reason for that is that the scriptures are, I think, a little bit less um, emphatic about deacons than they are about elders. There's a lot of material on elders. There's less about deacons. Okay. I think there's enough on deacons. Uh, so the key passages uh, that you look at there are Acts 6, mm -hmm. uh, where the apostles mm -hmm. uh, receive a complaint about the widows being overlooked in the mm -hmm. daily distribution of food, uh, and they find seven godly men and appoint them. They're not called deacons with the noun there in Acts mm -hmm. 6, but they're given the job of serving. It's the same as the, the related But you've still verb. got quite a bit of teaching um, prescriptively as a command in Titus and in Timothy. Yeah, that's right. I, I think there's certainly enough. So you, you get mm -hmm. Acts 6, and then you cross, come across to the epistles, uh, and in 1 Timothy 3, Paul talks about the overseer. That's another term for elder mm. in 1 Timothy 3. And then he talks about deacons likewise. Mm. Uh, then you find he writes to the Philippians, and he, say, he writes to the Philippian church together with the overseers and the deacons. Mm. Uh, so when you put all of that together, there's both apostolic example and apostolic command. And for me, that makes it normative or prescriptive for us. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think we've got some work to do in rehabilitating, in renewing uh, the work of deacons in our church. Okay, I've got a lot to ask you on this because this is the hot-button topic mm. at the moment, particularly in New South Wales. Mm. Um, what is the fundamental difference to start with between an elder and a deacon? You said before elders are about shepherding, mm. so then what are deacons? Yeah, uh, great question. It's not their godliness. Uh, so when you look at the uh, requirements for character in uh, the overseer and the deacon in 1 Timothy 3, they're very similar requirements in character. So we're looking for godly people. Mm -hmm. uh, the major difference is in 1 Timothy 3 to the overseer or the elder must be able to teach. Mm -hmm. uh, so central to the shepherding role is the teaching of God's word. Mm -hmm. There's no such requirement for deacons in 1 Timothy 3. Okay. So I think that's, that's the difference. When you match that up with uh, Acts 6, uh, you find that the seven men are appointed to serve tables. Okay. Uh, so it's not a teaching role. Now, some of them seem to have been gifted as evangelists. Yeah. They... Philip and Stephen. Mm. <laughs> and so they do go on to preach wonderfully, praise God, mm. uh, and God uses them effectively. But that's a function of their individual particular gifting, not a function of the office that they have, that they've been set apart to serve tables. I think that's the way that I'd make sense of that. Okay. Mm. Okay. Um, all right. So elders, ruling and teaching. Mm -hmm. Deacons, mercy ministry. Pastoral care even? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the things about deacons is there's um, there's not a, a really clear job description for them in Scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly the Reformed Presbyterian tradition is uh, that deacons uh, should be used for mercy ministry, for caring for those who are weak and vulnerable and poor. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you can make a really good argument for that out of Acts 6. That's the kind of trajectory that Acts 6 sets. These seven mm -hmm. men are set apart to look after the widows. Mm. Um, 
of course, they're, they're looking after the widows in the daily distribution of food. It's a, a very significant number of people involved in the Jerusalem church, thousands we're talking about. Mm. And so there would have been finances involved in that uh, as well. So, okay. so maybe you can have mm. uh, some kind of understanding of financial management, but with a view to caring for those who are weak. Uh, okay. And, and well, now, now you've triggered something because there'd be some people that go, well, we do have deacons. They're called the Committee of Management. Yes. Are they the same? Yeah, no, I don't think they are. So that, they, they potentially could be. And, and here's where we go back to the, the trellis image. We've got the central struts. How do we work it out in our particular context? And that's what uh, I want to go. <laughs> and I think uh, if, um, if we were really good at making the Committee of Management not only about managing property and finance, but also about um, providing service ministries that care for those in the congregation who are in need, uh, then I think you could say, oh, that, that's one and the same thing. Okay. The challenge for us historically has been that uh, we've, we've found, one, sometimes there's people with different um, inclinations and giftings that seem to suit the money management versus the pastoral care. Mm. Uh, sometimes you get both of those in the one person, but not always. Mm. Uh, and also we've found in our situation, um, managing property and finances is a reasonable sized responsibility. Mm. And maybe that's enough for one set of people. And so the way we're going in New South Wales is to have, uh, there's an overture that's being considered by the presbyteries at the moment, uh, and it's proposing that uh, we maintain a distinction between committees of management, uh, which look after property and finance, mm -hmm. and then deacons who work in cooperation with the committee of management and the eldership uh, in a range of different ways. Uh, okay, so let's get down to brass tacks on this. Yep. What does that look like, Murray, on the ground? Yeah. You know, at Hornsby Presbyterian Church, you've yep. got your session, you've got your committee of management, and then you've got your deacon's court, so to speak. Right, yeah. So, um, How do they interrelate? Yes, good. So in the proposal that's, that's going through um, the presbyteries in New South Wales at the moment, uh, we're not actually calling it a deacon's court because it's, it's not being set up as a ruling body to make judgments. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a team of deacons. Okay. Uh, I think that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that uh, the particular uh, work that the deacons do won't be determined by the code, our rule book, rule book in the church. Right. And we're trying to preserve there what we see as a, what I see as a kind of openness in Scripture and how exactly deacons will serve. You get the, the trajectory in Acts 6 towards caring for weak and vulnerable and poor. Mm. And you get the name deacon, which just means servant. But you don't get much more than that. Uh, and so I, I think it, uh, if this proposal goes through, it'll be up to individual sessions to work out how deacons are going to be used in their particular context. One good way of using deacons, mm -hmm. a traditional way of using deacons, would be to have deacons overseeing a mercy ministry. Uh, that is, you'd have some people set apart who would work within a budget set by the committee of management mm -hmm. under the direction of the elders with a particular focus on caring for people in the congregation and perhaps beyond the congregation, but somehow in some ways connected to it. Uh, who find themselves in need for whatever reason. Okay, so as I've been um, trying to think through this for my own congregation, a question that I have, and I'll be really intrigued to see how you answer this, uh, not that it's a gotcha moment, no, I, sure. I'm just I'm genuinely trying to think this through. There's a lot of people that come from independent churches where there's the minister who's seen as the elder, yep. and then there's the the, the parish council, so to speak, yep. which is the deacons made right. up of men and women, yep. which are effectively functioning elders, right? Now, what I mean is they come in into the church, mm -hmm. uh, into our church, and I heard a lot of people say, oh, I love this idea of deacons. It gives women a greater opportunity to serve. 
How do you maintain the distinction that a deacon doesn't start performing eldership responsibilities? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, that's a good question. So, I mean, I think the primary eldership responsibility is, is, is shepherding, uh, which mm-hmm. involves pastoring and teaching. Uh, and uh, the, the primary uh, deacon responsibility is serving. <laughs> I think well, I, th- I don't want to define it any more than that, um, mm. which is not any Christian person in serving other Christian people is going to be wanting to share God's word. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not going to put a ban on, on deacons teaching the word or, or sharing it in, in personal. But it can so very easily flip over into shepherding, can't no. it? Uh, yeah, so I, I think it, it will come down to the ways that the context in which the teaching is done. So the elders will take the lead in the pre, in the public preaching mm. in, in uh, gathered worship on Sundays. They'll take uh, the lead in teaching in other contexts, in, in Christian education classes and in, in small groups okay. and where else. Uh, whereas uh, the deacons will, in their role, will be focused on providing service ministries in the church, uh, maybe focused on uh, caring for those who are in need. Well, one way you could do that is you could set up uh, shepherding teams. I think mm-hmm. Timothy Whitner advocates this uh, in his book, mm-hmm. The Shepherd Leader, uh, where you can have elders and deacons paired up together. And so you know, I've got a, a group of people at our particular church at Hornsby who I'm pastorally responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, if a deacon was appointed to work with me, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, we could go and visit people together. Mm-hmm. Or if we, if okay. we become aware of particular needs, um, then I'll play a particular role. The deacon working with me will play a complementary role and we work together in caring for people. Okay. So. I've got a couple of other um, questions to drill down on uh, in terms of the practice then. Um, this is going to sound almost Episcopalian. Hmm. Um, is a deacon somebody that is potentially an elder in training? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, in some church traditions, that's how it's been treated. Mm. Uh, and certainly in the Anglican church, it's kind of a, a step on the, the, the ladder mm. um, uh, through the church. You're deaconed and then you're priesthood. That's right, exactly. Um, I don't see that as being a, a clearly... Um, necessary in scripture uh, particularly because of the uh, the difference in the qualification elders must be able to teach mm-hmm. uh, that's not a requirement of deacons mm-hmm. so it would be a good and right and god-pleasing thing for somebody to serve as a deacon their whole life long and it wouldn't be a failure if they never became an elder uh, in fact it, it may be the particular uh, gift that they are to the church mm-hmm. uh, that they're set apart and serve as a deacon it, it may be that some people uh, perhaps particularly younger people who uh, start out serving as deacons and that becomes apparent that they have a teaching gift that they then uh, are appointed as elders. Mm. Uh, but you do that on a case-by-case basis, not as a kind of ordinary, normal thing that everyone who's a deacon okay. is somehow on a track to becoming an elder. All right, second question then. Um, most of our churches, like yours, has um, a small group meeting during the week. Some people call it gospel communities, some people call it connect groups, Yep, whatever. Um Normally, uh, I guess in keeping with what you were saying before about elders, you would expect an elder to be a teaching leader of that group. Hmm. Is there wise practice in encouraging one of the, uh, each one of those groups to also have a deacon that represents uh, the caring aspect of that um, small group? Yeah, I, that's certainly a way you could do it. Again, I wouldn't want to mandate that because what I'm trying to do is um, hold... You're trying to keep it flexible. That's right. Hold, well, I'm trying to hold really tight to what's clear in Scripture mm-hmm. uh, and be flexible with what's not clear in Scripture. Mm. Uh, and so, I, I, again, I, I don't think you can see that taught in Scripture. Mm. And so I wouldn't want to impose that on any congregation. Yeah. But that might be a really good way of doing it. Uh, so I think I'd, I'd play it like that. So, yeah, that's a good idea. 
uh, let's work with that and see how it goes. Uh, an elder and a deacon uh, working together in a small group, taking responsibility for those people. Mm. Uh, but if a particular church doesn't want to do that, then uh, I don't see any biblical mandate for them to do that. Okay, so the $64,000 question, what do you guys do at Hornsby in this regard? Uh, we're still working it out. Uh, we're a relatively new church plant. We're uh, three years in, uh, mm. so we've worked hard at establishing our, our team of elders working together. Uh, we've then worked hard at establishing another group of people who work alongside us in overseeing particular ministries. Mm. Uh, and we're, we're right now in discussions about what's the next step. In part, I think we're waiting for the um, clarity from the New South Wales Assembly about deacons mm. uh, so that we can use the provisions that may or may not come through. <laughs> mm. I'm hoping they will come through. Uh, and we can use those as a guide for us uh, to then consider whether we establish deacons or not. Yeah. Here's another big issue to raise in, in relation to this, and it has ramifications, right, for other offices. Um, should deacons, and I say this question, uh, it's a bit of a Dorothy Dixer for the wider church also in thinking this through, should deacons be term appointed or should you be a deacon for life? Yes, great question. Uh, I don't, again, trying to hold tight to what is clear in Scripture, I don't see any yet, nobody's shown me yet, a, a clear um, requirement in Scripture that deacons would be appointed for life. Uh, and so therefore I'm very open um, to the possibility of deacons being appointed for set terms. Uh, and the, um, the provisions that are, are being discussed in the New South Wales press releases at the moment allow for deacons to be appointed for set terms. And I think it recommends something between two and three years. Mm -hmm. I can't remember now actually off the top of my head, but it recommends a short term. Uh, and that would be up to sessions to appoint um, deacons for a term that they uh, considered to be wise. Okay, so uh, while I've got you here, let me push push on you because we've had this debate amongst our own church. Mm. Um, what's the biblical warrant then for eldership for life? And shouldn't there be parity between yeah. the two offices? There's only two offices in the church, elder and deacon. Yep, sure. That's a good question, and to be completely honest, I'm still working out what I think about um, lifetime eldership. Mm. I can see real wisdom in it. If these are men who are being appointed uh, on the basis of their character and gifts to be pastors, shepherds for the churches, mm. uh, then there's a real stability in having them appointed uh, for the long haul. Yeah, you need to have, and we do have, provisions for disciplining elders and removing elders from office where necessary. That, that's really It's big, though, isn't it? That's crucial. That's right. But it's, it's big, um, and also we're gun-shy. Uh, maybe that's not the right metaphor, but we're, we're I think, a little bit um, lax in disciplining ourselves. Mm. Uh, so we do have provisions that we perhaps could use and should use more often than uh, we do. Mm. Um, but, yes... Uh, there's a real strength in having uh, elders appointed for life. There's a stability that gives to their ministry and therefore to the churches in which they minister, assuming that they're men of godly character who are faithfully performing the role. Mm. Uh, at the same time, I, I hear the arguments <laughs> for renewing the eldership by having men appointed for set terms. Uh, I know the Presbyterian Church in Singapore, they have something like uh, you serve for six years, then there's a mandatory three years off, then you can be reappointed again. Uh, so yeah, there's yeah. different models here, isn't there? That's right. Uh, I'm, I was. Um, I think our own presbytery is going to bring forth a petition to the assembly mm. uh, that we consider the merits of term eldership. Mm. Um, I mean, that would also play into then term ministerial appointments. Yeah, uh, and whether or not they be, for instance, five years renewed. Yep. Um, how do you respond to this? Um, our strength 
is also our greatest weakness. Mm. The strength of the Presbyterian Church is its stability, is its eldership. Is it also our weakness in that are there good people that get tired and are there actually elders that actually shouldn't be elders and that's become a weakness because it's holding the church back from growth? Yeah, that, that certainly can be the case. I mean, and that can happen in any, any system. Um, so, yes, and what's the antidote? I think yes is the simple answer. What's the antidote to that? It's, one, for those of us who are elders, uh, to be continually uh, coming back to God in prayer and in the Word and, and renewing and refreshing ourselves, um, you know, watching our lives and doctrine closely, as Paul puts it, uh, making sure that um, we're growing in the faith and are vital in our love for the Lord and our service of his people. Uh, them being willing within our eldership teams in sessions and in presbyteries uh, to encourage each other and call Keep each growing. other to account. Yep. That's right. Uh, to make those places, uh, sessions and presbyteries, where we feed each other on the word, mm. or where God feeds us through each other on his word, um, where we come away refreshed and renewed for the ministry, mm. uh, and where we have the hard conversations, brother, maybe it's time for you to, to step aside. Mm. Um, so I think there there are ways in which we can do better uh, at renewing uh, the eldership and keeping it fresh and vital. Mm. Uh, and that, that's crucial for the life of the church because where, where the eldership goes, there the church goes. Now, uh, it's been great talking to you. I want to have one final question. I know that I've specifically asked you to come in today to talk about elders and deacons. It's not the only thing you're interested in or passionate about. We should talk about your doctorate at some point, sure. maybe another time. Um but as a lecturer at Christ College, you're seeing uh, the younger, you know, the next generation of leaders coming through. Mm. What do you think is the most pressing need that we have at the moment as a denomination? What's the most pressing need? I always mm. find these questions hard uh, because I, the answer is always the same but always different. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's the most pressing need? Uh, we need... Um, uh, churches that are committed to the gospel of Christ. I guess I'm the, saying, what are you seeing as some of the challenges that mm. maybe the, the younger generation is coming through that you're mm. already thinking, wow, that wasn't a challenge when I was going through, but it's a challenge for these guys and, yeah, I, I'm, and, and sisters. Obviously, we're in a seismic cultural shift at the moment. And yeah. so I think having the tools to be able to engage that seismic cultural shift, is, I think, is a key challenge yeah, for the next massive, generation of ministers. Though, I mean, one way you could go, okay, let's pour all our, all our resources into uh, cultural analysis and cultural engagement. No, that's not the answer. The answer is go deeper into God's word, mm. but do that with an eye on uh, the, the, the changes and the challenges that are happening in the culture. Mm. Uh, marrying up that commitment to scripture uh, and deep orthodoxy in the Reformed tradition, mm. uh, we need to keep grounding our leadership deeply in those um, central things. Uh, with an eye on, okay, what does this mean uh, for transgenderism uh, and uh, the whole raft for euthanasia and for abortion and for refugees and for cultural uh, crisis and for, yeah, for the huge. whole raft of issues that are facing us as a culture at the moment? Yeah. Mm. Look, it's massive. And um, with the legislation at the moment in Victoria, which mm. implicates us all mm. uh, throughout the country, you're right. It is a massive seismic shift. Murray, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, it's been great. I'll have to have you back. And when you've finished your doctorate and you've gone through your Viva, you can tell us all about it. Right. Um, I look forward to it. Excellent. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Mark. Uh, well, thank you. This has been Mark Powell and uh, with Murray Smith. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of AP's Profiles in Christian Living and I hope to see you next time. Thanks very much. <laughs>